Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. If you want to email me, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. You can also follow the Facebook page at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow the podcast on Truth Social, Getter, and Twitter, the handle is at R-K-Y-F-R-E-E-D-O-M, at R-K-Y, and then the word freedom. Thank you very much for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. You may recall that on episode nine, I interviewed someone in the legislature here in Montana, Teresa Manzilla. Teresa Manzilla and I talked a lot about election fraud. Here on episode 11, I decided to revisit that topic with a person named Lisa Bennett. Lisa Bennett has been on the ground witnessing election fraud and even has stories to tell on this podcast. Just who is Lisa Bennett? First of all, let me tell you that she is developing a website called BuckTheSystemMT.com. That's BuckTheSystemMT.com. The MT, of course, stands for Montana. Lisa has been married to a computer consultant for 35-plus years who has a lot of experience in technology. Lisa also homeschools her three children from age 11 to 14. Lisa lives in Carbon County and spent hundreds of hours in volunteer activities helping the community recover after devastating floods in 2022. Lisa has also been the award winner for Initiative for Montana Federation of Republican Women in 2021. Lisa has also testified during the 2023 legislation session in Montana on specific bills. Lisa says, quote, I am a community activist who understands the need to help community members understand the Constitution and what their role is as a citizen so we have an educated, engaged, and connected community. Lisa didn't just get into conservative political activism overnight. She'll tell you in the podcast how she got into conservative political activism and how she ended up in Montana. Forgive us, folks. Lisa and I went on a tangent about Montana Candy Emporium in Red Lodge because we think it is very important to support local businesses, and they have very good old-fashioned candy up there. Also, we went on a tangent about how great it is that young people, such as those that are 10 years old, even 14, or any teenager, is educated in politics and how wonderful it is. Now, this podcast is going to be divided into three parts. You'll get the whole entire podcast on this particular recording of the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone, but then it's going to be divided into two episodes because this podcast was very long, and I think it's very important that you find out about Lisa's daughter's ballot initiative that she's trying to get on the ballot in 2024. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? I'm good, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I really enjoyed meeting you at a the class, The Constitution, A Solution. That it was I, a I, fantastic class. I really recommend that if it's ever held again, that your listeners definitely attend. I thought I knew a lot about the Constitution and a lot about politics, and my eyes were open to a lot of things I had no idea had occurred. Yeah, for those of you that don't know, The Constitution is a Solution is a series of DVDs put on by a person named Robert Brown in the John Burt Society. Now, you don't always have to agree with everything that the John Burt Society says. However, there's one thing that I do know 
is they know the Constitution very well and the history. Whether you agree with their politics or not, I think it's worth checking out, don't you think? Absolutely, because our freedoms come from God, and that's enshrined in our Constitution. Not mm -hmm. They do not come from our government. And if we relinquish the Constitution and relinquish our freedoms in God, then we are relinquishing our freedoms, period. Absolutely. And I happen to know the guy who put on that presentation. Well, I the guy that I happen to know the guy who did the DVD series. He's very knowledgeable about the Constitution. In fact, uh, I had an interaction with him back in 2019. And we've talked on the phone since then. But Lisa, let's learn a little bit about you. You live in the Flathead County, as I stated on no, the no, or, no, no, not I'm Flathead, Carbon County. County. Yes. I'm sorry. Yep. I keep getting those two mixed up. Carbon County, as I stated on the in the introduction. And how did you get to how did you get into politics? How did you get to Montana? Where are you from? And all those things. So I would say that I've never been involved in politics until I moved to Montana. It was probably about six months after I moved to Montana. And it really had nothing to do with me. We had moved here from Colorado. My mother-in-law used to be a treasurer. She is from Ohio. She used to be a county treasurer and or a, either the treasurer or the uh, county clerk, forgive me. And so I thought we're new and she moved with us. Let's get her to meet other folks. So I took her to a meeting just to meet people in the community. And uh, she didn't really take to it, but I did. <laughs> Here I am today. I started getting involved and in learning more about our community and being new to Montana, never having visited Montana before we moved here. And a lot of people ask us why we moved to Montana. Uh, there's no reason for us to be in Montana. I say that, you know, God brought us here. There was a purpose for us being here. And maybe, maybe my foray into the community activist role is part of that. But we moved to Montana and I wanted to learn about the state because I did not know anything really about the state other than where it was located on the map and how to spell it. Wow. Okay. So you felt divinely inspired to move here. Do you know why you felt divinely inspired? Maybe you didn't at the time, but maybe some time no, we has were passed. Actually, <laughs> we were actually looking to move to Cody, Wyoming, and God really? hardened my heart to the home that we were looking to purchase there. Although I really love the community in Cody and Powell, Wyoming. Great folks down there, just beautiful area. And we had already rented our house in Colorado, and we needed to find a place to live. And I happened to see something for sale up in Billings. My husband said he did not want to move to a big city. And so on our way home, we took the route through Red Lodge, and he enjoyed the the feel of Red Lodge and decided that this is a good area to look for a home. And we found one, and it happened very quickly, I'd say, Within seven weeks, we made an offer and closed on the house, and here we are. Well, uh, we're, we're going to get into politics here, but Red Lodge, that is a very nostalgic place, isn't it? Uh, well, it's a community that definitely has a history. Yes, and a lot of tragedy, too, with the coal mine disaster that happened. So uh, there's good and bad mixed bag. Well, I went to Red Lodge a few weeks ago, and I really liked the candy store up there, and it just seemed like a very nostalgic place. It reminded me of McCall, Idaho, 
if you've ever been there. Uh, McCall, Idaho is two hours from Boise. I'm not sure which direction, though. But you can look it up on the map. But we got to get our minds off of uh, nostalgia and no, small towns. No, let's not, because I need to put a plug in for that candy store. Oh, okay. That candy store is fantastic. And it's one of the best parts of Red Lodge. If any of your listeners are headed to Red Lodge, it's a good entrepreneur who owns that business. He should be supported. And oh, I okay. highly recommend it. I mean, all the candy that you can't find any longer, the old time candy, he's got it for sale there. And so the real sugar candy, not this aspartame stuff that makes you sick. Do they have good jelly ranchers there? I didn't check. I just bought a bunch of they taffy. Do. Really? They do. Yes. They, they, they've got everything you can imagine that you thought no longer existed. So let me ask you this. Where does he get all this if it's no longer existing? Where is he getting it? <laughs> it's it, it's still being made. The problem is, is that the big corporate grocery and convenience stores aren't carrying the old type candy. It seems like all the new formulations with the bad chemicals in it versus the good sugar <laughs> uh, are in that, you know, I don't think sugar is as bad as people claim it is. Um, I think the chemicals are what's really bad. Um, the, the corporate stores, the targets, the Walmarts, the grocery stores, they just uh, seem to be carrying the artificial candy instead of the real stuff. So, so if, if you remember the old sprees or things that you just have a hard time finding anymore, uh, chances are they're at his shop. So let me ask you about Jolly Ranchers real quick. Sorry, folks, we're going down uh, memory. We're going down memory lane, but I think it's good because sometimes we need to talk about the good old times, and sometimes it's just good to get a break from politics a little bit. Um, as I was in California last week, I decided to take a break from politics. Yes, it's on the left coast, but I got to feel a whale. I got to uh, go to the ocean. It was just a good break, even though it was on the left coast. But anyway, um, the point is, uh, okay, so let's talk about Jolly Ranchers. I bought a whole bunch of Jolly Ranchers back in 2018 at Walmart, and the shape of them has changed. It's no longer square. But they taste the exact exactly the same as they did when I was a kid. Do you think that they put artificial aspartame in those Jolly Ranchers, or because they taste exactly the same, just the shape so has I, changed? I'm not saying that all candy has done that, but mm -hmm. I'll use. I, I was a bubblegum kid. I loved gum, and one of my favorites was Wrigley's Juicy Fruit. And about, I'm going to say maybe seven, eight years ago, uh, Juicy Fruit got rid of the sugar and went to aspartame. And I didn't realize really? that. I thought I thought it was just new packaging, you know, because brands update their packaging. And I thought this does not taste like juicy fruit. And I realized it had aspartame in it, and in the trash it went. Uh, so a lot, and a lot of your sugar-free gums have gone to aspartame. And uh, I, I my, um, Monsanto was based in Illinois, and they lobbied really hard with the FDA because aspartame was not originally approved by the FDA. It was denied. And a lot of lobbying happened with Monsanto to get it approved. And uh, we're talking about uh, people in the Bush administration in his cabinet oh, wow. that used to Bush be- Bush um, 43 or Bush 41? W, 43. Bush, okay. 40, G okay. Bush yep. 43. Yep. So uh, a, a lot of people in his cabinet 
used to be on the board of Monsanto and they worked things inside and out with the FDA to, to get it approved. And we're now seeing studies that aspartame does cause cancer. And it, it's just one of those things where why put chemicals in your body? Uh, stick with Mother Nature. Yeah, good point. Now, I loved, I bought a whole bunch of taffy and I bought a bar. It's a zero bar. Have you seen one of those? I've seen them, but I've, I've not. Now, I'm, I'm not a those... big candy person. Oh, what's that? <laughs> I'm not a big candy person. I pretty much stick to just a couple different candy that I like and, and I'm not, I'm not brave to try new things. Well, I've never had a zero bar in my entire life, as far as I know. I mean, maybe I did when I was little. Let me tell you, those zero bars are very sexy. They are nice and smooth. You could just rub your hand on it all day. It is very sexy. And they taste good, too. Um, anyway, uh, we got to get off uh, a candy we could talk about. But, yes, uh, take Lisa's advice. Go support this guy. Who owns that, anyway? Do you want to mention his name or uh, you know, I don't know his name. I just know that he runs his business as if it were the 1950s, as far as friendly staff, caring. Um, at Halloween, they give out candy. It's it's just uh, the way that you would expect a small business to be run, and uh, that needs to be supported. Okay, so we have people all over the Rocky Mountains listening to this podcast, but if you are in Montana. In uh, Carbon County, which is above Yellowstone County, above Billings, go to Red. Go to the candy store. What is the name of that anyway? Classic candy called, or something? It's, it's actually called the Emporium, and oh. I will. And it looks like an old movie theater as far as the facade on the outside, with where you would have your messages um, with what movies were playing. I will. I will just say one thing. Carbon County is actually southwest of Billings. Oh, southwest um, are, of Billings. Okay. We are right above Park County, Wyoming, which is where Cody is. So we're the county just north of Cody. And we're also the gateway to the Beartooth Highway, which also takes you towards Yellowstone on the northern entrance through Cook City. All right. So on Lisa's recommendation, go check out Emporium at Red Lodge, uh, southwest of Billings, above where in Wyoming? Cody, above Cody, Cody okay. Wyoming. Yeah. Okay. So whether you're coming from Cody or, or heading to the Beartooth Highway to the northern part of West Yellowstone, uh, you would be coming through Red Lodge to, to do either or. And so they do we... have a good pizza place, too. Uh, this is not an advertisement. This is a plug. Bogart's <laughs> Pizza. Now, I don't know what their politics are like over there, but I did like their pizza. Of course, this is back in 2005. I don't know what it was like, what it's like now. Maybe you know, but uh, I liked it back then, and I know it's still in existence. Uh, Bogarts is still there, yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, we got to get back into business here, but I enjoyed that little detour. We need that sometimes. Um, let's talk about election fraud. And now many of you remember that I did an episode with Teresa Manzella on election fraud of Montana. I believe it was episode nine, I believe. And we, we're we going to continue this conversation. Lisa, what do you want to say? I'll just let you take over from here, and I'll ask you some questions here and there. Well, our family has an adage that applies, and it is 
You get what you inspect, not what you expect. And as typical political rhetoric, you will have mm -hmm. a lot of your Montana state representatives and senators telling you that they did a lot to make things better as far as addressing election fraud. I will tell you that there were a lot of bills that were fluff bills that actually made things worse instead of better. If you don't read those bills and understand the ramification of those bills, don't let your local rep or senator tell you that they did a lot for election integrity just because they passed a bill. Because I want to ask you about that real quick. Because <laughs> um, I know that, yeah, a lot of bills passed. Apparently, five of them are under investigation by civil rights groups. Uh, particularly the indigenous groups up here. Do you know anything about that? I don't know anything about the investigation or lawsuits, but what I can tell your listeners is that I probably spent a total of five weeks up in Helena, and I'm just a citizen. Now, I didn't spend five weeks straight. It may have been a few days here, maybe a week at a time there. And, and so I went to a lot of hearings. I also attended via Zoom a lot of hearings, especially the Select Election Integrity Committee, which Teresa Manzella and others were on. I listened to the manufacturer of our election tabulation equipment speak and uh, lie, lie over and over again. When was uh, about... this meeting, by the way? So the, the the hearings were held January and February. So there were several meetings over. Oh, those during two the months. legislation. During uh, the legislative okay. session, okay. yes. And I attended almost almost every single one of those. I couldn't attend all of them, but I was definitely there when the ESNS chief security officer was speaking about the equipment, and it incensed me that he flat out lied about the equipment. We had attended lots of demos. We probably attended four different election machine demos throughout the state, so not just in our county. We also um, had the privilege or the opportunity to meet with uh, people involved in the process, different election clerks and, and administrators, and be able to get a lot more understanding of the whole system. So we're speaking from hands-on experience. But one thing that my husband is a computer consultant, one thing he noticed right away is that all the equipment comes pre-ordered, pre-delivered, you know, delivered with RJ45 connections. For those of you who don't understand the terminology, the jack behind your computer, if it's an RJ45 jack, that's where an ethernet cable can get plugged in so you can connect your computer to an ethernet connection, basically the line that gives you internet in your home. Then there's also something called an RJ11 jack. An RJ11 jack is your phone jack. So if you had a fax machine, you would connect it up to that. Um, you know, if you somehow wanted to connect a phone line. So RJ11 phone, RJ45 ethernet cable equal internet. Okay, and so I have a all, question. Yeah. My computer has nothing but USB ports. I don't even think mine has an RJ45 jack in the back. Can you get it, those? I, I know. I bet you it does. I bet you you're just not aware of it because maybe you don't need to use it because you're on some wireless connection. Uh, but almost every single computer comes with an RJ45 jack still because a lot of people do connect directly to an Ethernet line to get their Internet. 
whether that's with Comcast, whether that's with Starlink, et cetera, the connection has to get into your home. And your particular laptop, for example, might be connected wirelessly, but that RJ45 jack has to go to your router, um, that your wireless router. So you those jacks are on computers because sometimes you have to connect direct because there is no wireless router. Yeah, I'm just looking in the back. I don't see, uh, I know what you're talking about, uh, like a phone jack type thing. And I'm not seeing it. But anyway, the RJ45 connects to the internet. Yep, and the RJ11 and, connects to a phone line. Yeah, that's and, like your traditional phone jack in the wall, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so they're different sizes, different plugs go in there. Obviously, the RJ45 jack is larger. So yes. here is your chief security officer for your election manu- uh, tabulator ele- a manufacturer. And he is telling this committee there is no connection for the internet on this machine. So it was brought up by one of the representatives at that hearing. Well, aren't there RJ45 jacks on these machines? And he said, oh, no, those are RJ11s. Those are just for connecting up a fax machine if you wanted to. Flat out lied. Flat out lied about not, well, we used to, but we don't anymore. No, no, no. Just flat out, oh, no, no, we don't. No, we don't. And so either you have someone completely incompetent at the top executive level of this company, or you have someone who lies because he figures most people aren't going to have the opportunity to inspect and verify. And, you, you know, you figure out, you figure what you can get away with. Well, that well, let me ask you this real lie. quick. <laughs> um, did he have a photo proving that, yes, there were RJ45 jacks on this, in this machine? Because that would have really destroyed his credibility. Regardless, um, he did eventually backpedal a little bit. But regardless, it it wasn't a hearing where everyone, like you didn't know where it was going to go. You didn't know he was going to deny it. So you didn't know to have a picture available to show him. It's not as staged as sometimes you see at the federal level in D.C. where those people have a whole staff that can put together a PowerPoint presentation or posters or, or things like that. Our representatives and senators in Montana have no staff and they practically don't get paid either. They get a really small daily stipend for the days that they're there, which doesn't even cover your gas money to get there, let alone your room and board. So uh, these people really are dedicated and especially the people who don't live in Helena uh, are spending their own money to represent us. Which, you know, leads you to the other question of how many of them are really altruistic in doing this and how many of them have other motives, uh, because you're not going to give up your time where you could be earning money unless you truly had a good heart. You know, do all of our people have good hearts? I would hope so, but that's not necessarily a guarantee. Once again, you have to inspect. Uh, You can't just expect. Yeah. Well, so at this meeting, they this guy ended up backpedaling a little bit, but it sounds to me like these machines are definitely connected to the Internet, especially some of the research that I have done. Well, they're capable. Whether they are or not is not the question. The question is, if you're in a state where it's not supposed to be connected to the Internet, why are you shipping machines with all the equipment on it that easily can connect it to the Internet? 
shouldn't you then be shipping machines that are devoid of all of the material or hardware that's necessary to connect up? I mean, let's make sure they absolutely can't. Let's make sure that we actually create the equipment in such a way that it can't. Now, the other thing too is things are really sophisticated these days and technology is really increasing. Your listeners may or may not be aware, but now your outlets in the wall, so those those little plugs where you plug in your vacuum cleaner or your computer or whatever you're plugging in, those outlets in the wall can be installed with wireless connectivity on them so that the equipment you plug in doesn't even need to have the capability. As soon as it's plugged into the wall, it gets the capability. So you've got that angle as well. So you can't just be secure in knowing that your computer or whatever it is in front of you can't connect. You don't know if when you plug it in for power, the wireless connection is in that wall jack or that wall outlet. Huh, interesting. So these outlets in the wall now have Wi-Fi connections, kind of. I don't know how the, at all, well, a router or... Not your old, you know, not your old ones that were installed previously, but especially in new construction, yeah. uh, they are using outlets. That way you don't have to have wires run all over the place separately for it. So it's like the old days when you had a phone and maybe you had an address book that you carried with you. Or if you remember in the early 90s, there were the Palm Pilots where you had address books and things like that. Eventually oh, yes. that Back became in the early one. 2000s, yes. Uh, early 1990s, actually. And and those those merged. They merged and together became a cell phone. So it's the same thing with those wall jacks. Originally, they are just for power. But instead of having a separate router laying around and figuring out where to put it and the wires to connect up to it, the electrical companies are now creating the outlets with the wireless capability in them. It's, it's just a, it's a merging of technology. Wow. Okay. So here's the here's another thought that I'm having, and I, I, I I'm a little fixated on this because this is new to me. They may say it's not connected to the internet, and they may have these RJ45 jacks, but the other thing is they might say, oh, it's just connecting to a LAN, local area network, or it's connected to a WAN, wide area network for the whole state of Montana. Okay. But what if that? What if you your votes are submitted, and eventually from that wide area network that goes on to the internet? We don't know. I don't know. What What would you say? I'd say that that is something that requires someone with the expertise to look at. I would also say that there wasn't a single person in our legislature. I would even say there's not a single person in the governor's office or secretary of state's office that has the technical expertise to truly be able to determine how to make something like that safe and secure. The easiest way to make our elections safe and secure is to do the old fashioned thing and go back to Amish voting where we count the ballots by hand in the precinct, just like major countries do, such as France. Yes, and I bought this up on episode nine. I've got to bring it up here because me being a blind person, I agree with you, though. They're going to say, oh, Kevin, we can't vote independently because we're blind. Well, 
Okay. Uh, I would assume, uh, Lisa, that the state would print out braille ballots for you. We've done this before 30, 40 years ago. Uh, now somebody's going to have to interpret your braille ballot and do a print one, or you might just have to bring somebody into the ballot box with you and hopefully you trust that person. We've done that before. I mean, I was on the whole bandwagon of talking ballots until the 2020 election or after that. What, what would you say to that? Well, I'm definitely not an expert in that area, so I'm going to put that out there. But there are definitely ways to overcome it. And I know that there are experts both working with the disabled and also working with uh, different government groups that probably already have a solution similar to what you suggested that would definitely work. I know what happens today is that there's an express vote machine where certain disabled people can use it. What a lot of your listeners may not know is that oftentimes that express vote machine does not use the same ballot that the rest of us use. Therefore, really? as secret as you think your vote is, it's not because you're probably one of only one who uses the machine because in a lot of counties, nobody does. And a matter of fact, um, in most counties, the able are using the machine just to make it available, just to say that, yeah, it was used. So you've got one person per county possibly using that machine. And as a result, that ballot is different and has to be taken to the resolution room. And if you're the only one who used that machine, they sure in heck know how you voted, even if your name's not on the ballot, because you're the only one who used the machine. So the, the point that I'm making here is that, yes, secrecy is important. Yes, you need to have people you can trust and a process you can trust. But you can't assume that because they spend ten dollars to $15,000 on a machine that you're accomplishing that. Once again, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. So your ballot, the only one that was voted on that express vote machine, goes to a resolution room usually where they transpose it onto a regular ballot like the rest of us vote on that then gets read through the machine. But because very few people use that express vote machine, you now have such a small number of people using it that technically you could figure out who voted what ballot as a result, especially if you're the only one using the machine. Interesting, because I, I thought that uh, in Montana, every single machine talked, had one of those keypads, because where I'm from in Utah, you register to vote, you go into the voting booth, they'll give you a keypad if you're blind to hook up to the machine and a set of headphones, and away you go. You can vote as a blind person. But I don't know. I don't know how that works here in Montana. I haven't voted in a booth here, so I'll leave that up to the consumer groups to tell me later, and I can come back and talk about it on another podcast. How's that? Sounds good. Okay. So anyway, so back. So they denied at first whoever was the representative. What voting machines were these? By what was the name of the voting machines again? So it's the manufacturer is E S and S. Yes, election systems and software. Yes. Okay. And they they are the only approved vendor that I'm aware of in Montana and every county uses ESNS machines. Okay. Now, and so the big counties use the bigger machines, the small counties use the smaller machines, so different models, but they all use the same manufacturer. 
Okay, so they this representative, I'm assuming, denied that. Oh, they they were just uh, RJ11 jacks, and then they back. You know, this person backpedaled. What else happened at this hearing, though? So there were a lot of. Well, we need to get back to you on that. But the one thing that I thought was really important, which hopefully your listeners know a little bit, but if not, we'll educate them, is there's something called the cast vote record. And the reason why the cast vote record is important, and by the way, that is that was the C-A-S-S? one. No, it's, no, it's, it's C-V-R, cast vote record. Oh, C-V-R, okay. Cast vote record. Um, what the I'll explain what the cast vote record is, but I will start by saying that the one good thing that ES&S said was that they highly recommend everyone turn on that functionality and that it's very easy to turn it on. It's very difficult to turn it off. Now, what do I mean by difficult? So if you were to work in Excel or Word document, you've got buttons at the top of your screen where you just click on the button and it does whatever you want it to do, like underline or bold, you know, oh, change yeah. the font, that sort of thing. Yep. To to turn it on is simple, like what you would do to bold a letter in a Word document. Mm -hmm. To turn it off, you got to go into the menu, a submenu, another submenu, and a submenu off of that to turn it off. So you have to really know where you're going in order to turn it off, right? It's not like I accidentally clicked a button and didn't realize I did it. You intentionally have to dig deep into the menu system to get it so that you no longer are tracking cast vote records. In Montana, not a single county keeps the cast vote record. Originally, back for the 2020 election, we were given excuses like, well, we had no idea how to turn it on, or, or you'd get excuses like, well, it takes longer for a ballot to get processed when it's read if the cast vote record is on. All of that is nonsense. And it's excuses. And we haven't really been able to get to the bottom of it yet. But we are led to believe that the Secretary of State's office has dictated to every county to turn it off. Now, you have to understand, elections are run locally, which means the local election administrator does not have to listen to the SOS when they say turn off the cast vote record. It's not required by law that it's off. It's it's not required anywhere. It's just a it's just a directive. And and the Secretary of State does not run our elections. Our county folks run our elections. Yet every single county followed the SOS and turned off the cast vote record so that we didn't have them. Now what are cast vote records and why do we need them? I have to emphasize that there's a lot of confusion amongst our election administrators and county clerks and the general public and our legislators on what a cast vote image, which is a CVI, and a cast vote record, which is a CVR, is. And these are very important points to distinguish. Your election machine is a scanner. When you put your ballot in there, it is scanning your ballot. It is storing that ballot in the memory. And then based on where the dark ovals are filled in and how it lines up with the ballot, the machine is essentially reading that scan. And based on the placement 
of the dark ovals, it is then giving a vote for one party or the other or one ballot initiative versus the other. That's automatically done every election. It's an image. That's the only way the machine can read your ballot. It goes by the placement of the image, kind of like a, a Scantron machine, but a little differently. So when people talk about it takes longer if we do a cast vote record, it does not take any longer to do a cast vote record. The machine is already imaging, scanning that ballot in order to count that ballot. What the cast vote record is, it is, it is telling you at 9.39 a.m. and two seconds, one ballot was read, and these are the votes on that ballot. Democrat for president, Republican for House seat, so on and so forth down the ballot. Why that's important is in a normal election, you will not have all of the same votes tabulated at the same time. In other words, if someone wins the election 51% to 49%, then every other ballot should be pretty close to an even split for how many votes that candidate got. So if I put in 100 ballots and ultimately at the end of the election, the person won by 51% to the um, other candidate who lost at 49%, then it would be highly improbable if the first thousand ballots were all voted for the winner and no votes for the loser. You that it's just improbable. It, it to get to the fifty-one forty-nine percent, it needs to be more of a balance. So you could have five in a row that are for one person, but you're not going to see huge anomalies where hundreds of votes are going towards one person. Or if you know that the machine can only process a ballot once every five seconds, then it would be impossible to have 100 ballots that went in at exactly the same time, the same minute, the same second. And so the cast vote record keeps a record of every ballot that went through, what time it went through, and who it voted for, if there were undervotes, et cetera. And so st statistically, you can see the variability you're supposed to see for the end result outcome. Without it, you have no idea if someone took a bunch of blank ballots and filled them in and voted every uh, everyone the exact same way so that the same person is winning every race all the way down the ticket. You have no way of spotting that without the cast vote record because all you have is that at the end of the night that the machine processed 10,000 ballots and that the vote was 51% to 49%. But you don't know statistically if it was random like it's supposed to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I got a question, though, about the CVR. Sure. So I guess just voting in general. Every time I have been at a voting booth and voted... I hear this, uh, it sounds like a computer printing off. It sounds like an old, kind of like a bunch of old typewriters going off. It, it reminds me of uh, the ribbon days where you'd have a bunch of typewriters and the ribbon. It just sounds like an old, old computer printer. I don't know how to describe it. You probably know what I mean, though, with uh, a bunch of quiet typewriters going off with the ribbon. Is that That's what the, is that what it's doing? That's only doing it for 
your express vote, meaning the disabled equipment, because it you are not able to fill it in yourself because you can't see where to fill in. And so it's printing it for you based on what you told it to do. And so you just have to assume that it's printing it correctly. But on your express vote, it is filling in your ballot for you based on what you selected. So it does print out a ballot, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay, because I've tried to look for the ballot when it does that, and I cannot find it. It's it's It kind of is weird. Well, so I want to go back to the cast vote image versus the cast vote ballot to explain okay. a little bit further. So you get a lot of people who do not want the cast vote records out there. And especially, uh, you know, for those of you who might be in Bozeman, um, Representative Staffman needs to go big time. Um, Mm -hmm. He sabotaged, like you wouldn't believe, the Election Integrity Select Committee. Um, They couldn't get any good bills out of that committee. And it was all because of Staffman, a Democrat from the Bozeman area, sabotaging anything that had to do with election integrity. And here's where it gets interesting. You get a lot of people who think that the image that gets scanned of the ballot is the cast vote record. No, that's the cast vote image, just like it says image. The Uh cast vote record does not take a picture of the ballot. It simply is a database that tells you what was read on that ballot. So it's just like an Excel spreadsheet, so to speak, that tells you here's the ballot, here's the time it was read, and here are the votes that came off that ballot. So it's just the data off that ballot. We had a lot of election administrators, Secretary of State people, even a lot of our senators and representatives saying, oh, but the privacy concerns, we don't want the cast vote record because what if someone writes a smiley face or what if someone has a write-in candidate and they write in their own self, their name? Like So they, they, they put the name Lisa Bennett on the ballot. Then everybody knows whose ballot that is, and that's no longer a secret ballot. And the secrecy of the ballot is so vital that we cannot release this information. Well, the cast vote record will track if someone did have a writing candidate, but it will not track if you put a smiley face on there. It won't track if you put some identifying mark on your ballot that would identify it as your own. Uh, it, it doesn't because it's not an image. It's just the data off the ballot. And that data is so crucial because that's how you can check to see if you have anomalies that don't make sense. And for those in Montana who think that our election machines are perfect, uh, Kevin, I will give you a letter from 2012 where Senator Ripley, who ran in the Wolf Point area, lived in a precinct that only had 25 people. And in that precinct, it was mostly his family that lived there, including himself and his wife. And back in 2012, he handily won his election, but he noticed it was really odd that he had zero votes out of his own precinct where he knows he and his wife at least voted for him. And if the rest of his family was angry with him and didn't, that was a shock. So he brought it to the attention of the election administrator of Lewis and Clark County. She could not explain it, so she followed up with ESNS, the manufacturing company for the equipment, and said, "Can you please look into this?" 
Well, lo and behold, all on their own with no other IT staff from the state there to verify, they said they, ESNS, the manufacturer of the tabulating machine, said, oh, we had a programming error in that one precinct in that one race. But we checked everything else and everything else is absolutely perfect. Now, if they have an error in one race and you're not allowed to look at their code to see what that error was and to see if that error was replicated anywhere else, how in the world would you believe that that was the only error? Now, I'm going to put another one out there too. This was all done after the election was certified. We get a lot of county clerk or a lot of county commissioners and people in your county clerk's office who say, oh, we do a canvas, we we double check, we randomly pull a precinct and we double check all the ballots and make sure it adds up to the same number as the machine. And it always does. It's always perfect. So therefore, you should always trust the system. Well, if that's the case, then how in the world does Senator Ripley's race not get checked and not get caught before it was certified? The answer to that is they check a random precinct for a random race, which means 98% of what's on your ballot never gets checked. So... Uh, what I'm saying is that there's the potential when you think about the probabilities, if you've got any math majors out there, statisticians, you think of the probability, the probability of a canvas catching a mistake when so few races are actually hand counted and double checked is slim to none. So the CVR, uh, the CVR that you can turn on will make sure that It'll give you the statistics, the time and date that somebody voted. Right. So it's not the time and date that someone voted. It's the time and date the ballot was tabulated. Because a lot of people oh. assume that as soon as they they put their ballot into a machine that it's tabulated, well, most of our counties, they centrally tabulate, which means all you're doing is you're putting your ballot into a box which then gets carried to the central tabulation location, which could be the county clerk's office or the court office, or it could be a civic center. And then it's tabulated on the machines there. Now, a lot of times the central tabulation is pushed as a cost savings measure, because if you had to count in the precincts, you'd have to buy a machine for each of those precincts if you weren't hand counting. Another reason to go back to hand counting is let's save all this money and just hand count in the precincts. But here's another stat that, you're, that your listeners need to know. Approximately 75% of everyone in Montana votes by absentee ballot. And there's a huge problem constitutionally and uh, I guess I'll say with security by doing that. And I'll give a couple examples so that your listeners can understand why they should go to their county clerk's office and fill out the form saying we no longer want to get an absentee ballot. For starters, if you have 75% coming in in the mail because they're absentee, that means you have very, very few people voting at the precinct level. As a matter of fact, you could have some precincts that maybe only have 50 to 100 people voting. 
it doesn't make sense to buy a ten to fifteen thousand dollar machine at the precinct level to count the votes. And I will say that our really slow election machine in Carbon County, because we're a smaller county, that it's an it's a DS two hundred. It costs fifty five to sixty five thousand dollars for one machine. So it absolutely made sense to no longer count in the precincts when we have some precincts where only 100 people are voting because why spend that much money on a machine? And that machine doesn't last for 100 years. At every like five to six years, you got to cycle it out and get a new machine, right? Maybe you can go 10 years max, but I doubt it because eventually the manufacturer stops supporting the machine and therefore they force you to buy a new one. It's like your computer at home. Yep. Uh, eventually, you know, Windows says they don't support that level of Windows anymore. You got to buy the upgraded version, so on and so forth. So that's, th there's a lot of cost involved. So when you have so few people voting in the precincts, it doesn't make sense to have the machines there. Therefore, a lot of counties have consolidated. They buy just a few machines, have them in a central location and bring all the ballots there to count. And especially if you've got 75% of your population voting absentee, they're all coming into your clerk's office anyway. So it makes sense for them to centralize because the majority of votes are, are happening that way. But here are the problems. Think about it. If you knew how 75% of people were going to vote on an issue, then you pretty much know before the election as those absentee ballots trickle in which direction things are leaning. And you could say, well, how do we know that? Well, in Montana, it's different in other states. In Montana, the bigger counties like Yellowstone are allowed to open up and start counting those absentee ballots about three days before the election. Now, smaller counties are allowed to open up the ballots the day before. They're not allowed to count them, but they're allowed to open them up. But how easy would it be to count with when you open them up Whatever race you're most interested in or whatever ballot initiative you're most interested in, if it's a yes vote, it goes to the left. If it's a no vote, it goes to the right. And at the end of the day, when you're done opening up the ballots, you put the two piles next to each other and you see which pile's bigger. Right. You can pretty yeah. much gauge yeah. yep. very easily just by doing that, even though you're technically not tabulating them. And it's been told that that has occurred in the past in different counties. And so it's another way of cheating. Let me ask you this about the absentee ballots. Yes. Do you think before these voting machines even existed, do you think 30, 40 years ago this was a problem when people voted absentee? I'm not just talking about Montana, although we will focus on that specifically too, but other places. Do you think that this has not been a problem? Not as it is today. Things changed in the last 20 years. But previous, you had to have an excuse to get an absentee ballot. You had to go in and you couldn't do it more than 30 days before the election. There were a lot of parameters to make it very difficult to vote absentee. Today, you've got states where it's 100% mail-in ballots. I mean, you've got states where there is no precinct in-person voting any longer. You have to do it mail-in ballot. And as a matter of fact, in Montana, there are certain elections that are 100% mail-in. And for example, you know, a lot of the the county level, like school board and and maybe municipal elections or, or bond initiatives, jail referendums, whatever it might be, are 100% mail, 100%. You don't get the option to come in in person to vote on those. And so 
you end up with a situation where you make it a lot easier to cheat. Now, other ways that that things could be cheated. Uh, This has happened in other states. I have no proof that it's ever happened here in Montana, but it easily could. You had people who had access to the voter registration system going into that system. And in some states, the people who had access were not government employees. You had a lot of nonprofits. Like if your listeners remember ACORN back in the day, which ACORN is no longer, but there's a lot of new get out the vote groups that that really are ACORN just as a new iteration of it that have access to the voter rolls in different states. Wisconsin's a prime example. They had a lot of nonprofit groups that register people to vote and they actually can go into the voter registration database and add the person manually themselves. Does not have to be done by a county employee. And that that's not the case here in Montana to my knowledge, but it is the case in a lot of other states. Well, you can say, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, is that, Kevin, you could be registered to vote with a mail-in ballot and someone can go into the system and change your zip code so that it becomes undeliverable and you don't get your ballot like you're supposed to in the mail. If it's undeliverable, then the post office gets it back. And what we know from a whistleblower out of New Jersey is that the person who works at the mail processing center He's only getting paid 15 bucks an hour. It's not much. And if someone is going to offer him $1,000 for that whole bin of undeliverable ballots, just hand it to him after hours out out the door, the back door, that $1,000 is going to seem like a good deal to him because that's a lot of money in his pocket when he or she doesn't make very much. So a lot of or a lot of times you could have someone who's a disgruntled Democrat or Republican and they intentionally want to sabotage an election for or against a certain candidate. And the whistleblower in New Jersey specifically told their inside postal worker that if the envelope had a fold in the corner, you know, just like the corner was folded back a little bit, like it got smushed, that that was a Democrat ballot and they weren't supposed to touch it. But that if people had mailed back in their ballots and that fold wasn't there, to pull those ballots aside, these are legitimately voted ballots, in the envelopes to pull that aside and to put them in a bin and they would pay them for those. And what they were doing was steaming open the envelope, assuming that they were going to be Republican votes. And then they replaced them with another ballot that actually had the vote for the other candidate. Now, why is that important? The whistleblower said duplicating or faking ballots is really easy to do. The envelopes are harder to come by. So this was done so that they could get envelopes. And those envelopes had the signature of the voter on them already. So the signatures were going to match. They just substituted the fake ballot on the inside. So what I'm saying is there's lots of different ways to cheat with mail-in ballots. It's a lot more difficult to cheat with in-person, right? That requires computer programming skills and someone messing with the machine, maybe even having access to the internet on the machine, which may or may not be the case. But old-fashioned cheating is real easy. And I'm going to even put one out there too for your listeners who may not be aware of this, but never leave something undervoted. An undervote is when you leave something blank. You just don't vote it at all. 
you don't know the candidates or you don't care about the issue. You don't care if it wins or doesn't. So you just leave it blank. You don't know the judge, whether he should be voted in or out. So you leave it blank. You never leave it blank at all, ever. And the reason why you don't leave it blank is because if you have an unscrupulous election judge or county worker or election administrator who sees an undervote, how easy is it to take a pen and fill it in with the candidate or the yes, no vote that they're looking for? And it's been it's been discussed with different poll wor workers, even in Montana, that they suspect that insiders, meaning people who work for the county, have separated ballots. And that's what we saw in Carbon County as well on video on Election Day. We saw that ballots were being separated, not by judges, but by clerk staff alone. No one with them, no supervision. Why were some going in one pile and some going into the other pile? We suspect they were looking for undervotes. And if there was an undervote, they could fill it in easily and no one would catch because who's to know that a ballot oh, wasn't yeah. completely filled in? Nobody. And if you don't have poll watchers that are all over the building, you wouldn't catch it because they usually do it at someone's desk behind closed doors. Yeah, pretty scary. So uh, to recap, just so the listeners know, if you have a mail-in ballot, and I'm not going to lie, it's nice and convenient, but if you mail your ballot in, somebody could easily... Just set that aside, uh, you know, the stacks. Let's say uh, there's a presidential election. I'm voting for Donald Trump. So they're going to stack the Trump ones somewhere, and then they'll stack the, the, let's just say, for a conversation, Joe Biden somewhere. Or they might do what you said, uh, you know, and just uh, someone will say, well, if these envelopes have a folded corner, they're... Republican or their Democrats ignore those. But the Republicans, they don't have a folded corner. Take those and put them in a bin, and then they will put another vote in there that is for the Repu the Democrat candidate and basically attach your name to it, even though you did not vote for the Democrat candidate, correct? Well, and your name is attached to it because you've signed the envelope. You already signed it. It's just not your ballot inside that envelope anymore. They have steam opened the envelope, pulled out your original ballot and substituted it with one with the people and the, the election issues voted the way they want. Wow. And this so, actually happened in New Jersey. Yes. Yes. The whistleblower came forward to say that's how he was doing it in New Jersey. And there's probably a hundred other ways. I mean, we're not crooks. And there's probably a hundred other ways that it could be done as well. The point is, are you willing to exchange convenience for security? Are you willing to take the chance that your vote is going to get hijacked? I don't think it's worth doing. I I really think that if you are concerned about your vote counting, then you better be in precinct in person. But let's go to the constitutionality of this. We have, under the First Amendment, the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances. One of the ways we do that is through ballot initiatives. And I know we're planning on talking about my daughter's ballot initiative here shortly. Uh -huh. If you don't have people showing up to the precinct, which is, by the way, on Election Day, the best way to get signatures on a ballot initiative is to be at the precinct where, you know, registered voters are already showing up. So 
if that's the case, then if less people are showing up in the precinct, then your ballot initiative is going to be even harder to get signatures on. Because when people vote by mail, there's absolutely no way to get a hold of them unless you can find them at their house. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty scary, isn't it? That's I, I wish we didn't have to talk this way. I wish that this was just a conspiracy theory, but it's a conspiracy fact. I wish yeah, we could lot, just laugh this off, but we can't. A, a lot of times there are lots of unintended consequences that we're not aware of, and we don't even realize that we're trading off maybe convenience for our rights and and we wouldn't have done it if we had been fully aware of what we were doing, but we just assume, oh, this is the norm. Everybody does this, and we we think, you know, positively that oh, this is a good thing, and we don't necessarily think about the long term effects. And uh, with my daughter's ballot initiative, one of the things we're going to talk about is the cost of college, and the long term ramifications of higher ed on our civilization. And in our economy, there are huge ramifications. And a lot of people don't necessarily connect the dots. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to say about election fraud, though, before we get into the ballot initiative? You know, absolutely. I think I'll start off by saying that I will be providing you with the link to the video of our election administrator, Crystal Rossio. Oh, yes. Let's talk Day. about that. On election day, this last election, November 8th, 2022, they had privacy screened their cameras. They had purchased the camera system in 2021. So this was the first election they ran with the camera systems. But they put the order into privacy screen, which means like put a black screen over it so you can't see anything that the cameras are recording. And the camera privacy screen could not cover up the date and time stamp which is on the camera so there's one inch at the top of the camera that was still able to record everything else was pretty much black screened that one inch happened to be over the shredding machine and our election administrator was caught shredding what looked like absentee ballots on election night which of course is illegal you know the county's claiming that they're uokava ballots and uokava stands for uniform overseas civilian absentee voting act and that is for people in the military state department etc that might be stationed away from home you could be in the united states like you could be uh, at camp lejeune even though you're from montana uh, you know, or you could be in Iraq, Iran, Syria, Korea, wherever in the world you might be located. It allows you to vote via computer. So you do not get the same ballot the rest of us get mailed. Um, if it's a, you know, if you're an absentee voter, you actually have to log on to a computer software system, like an internet site, and then you get the ballot for your local election and you get to fill it out and submit it into your county. The county then gets it via email. They print it out. And when they print it out, they then take it to the resolution room. And the resolution room then transposes who you voted for, kind of like your express vote ballot, transposes that onto a regular ballot that the rest of us got mailed. And then that gets that gets read through the tabulation machine to get counted. So you have to understand that 
what's getting sent is via email and it's getting printed on a regular printer on regular computer, 20 pound paper, not the heavier 60 pound paper that you get with your normal ballot. It is getting printed on paper without timing marks. If you notice your ballots have these little black squares and rectangles around the, the border, um, all of that is different with your absentee or excuse me, with your UOCAVA ballot. So our county is claiming that what she was shredding were just the copies that she printed off the computer that she brought to the resolution room. Well, we have in testimony with the Select Election Integrity Group that although there is no law on whether those printouts from the computer are considered election material that has to be kept, in other words, it's, it's kind of a gray area, it's not defined, that almost everybody keeps them anyway because it's a good paper trail for why you filled out another ballot in the resolution room. Like here's the Uokava, here's the other one. Uh, but so our county is claiming that that's what they were shredding. The interesting part to note is that on the video, which I will give you, Kevin, so you can link up for your listeners, on that video, we did not include apart from the January 4th meeting where our election clerk and, or excuse me, our county clerk and our election administrator met with the Carbon County Republican women to talk about the election process. We didn't include this little clip, but in that meeting that we videotaped, these women actually state that they printed on regular computer paper and that they only had six UOCAVA ballots, six. Now this is before we release the video. This is before they knew that there was even anything on the video. They never even looked to see when we requested the video. They kind of laughed thinking we were paying all this money for black video. They never even looked. They didn't inspect. Remember, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. And uh, they had no idea that they were caught shredding ballots. And so when it was finally put out there, the county did not have the video of the women's meeting and did not know that these ladies had said there were only six Uokava ballots. So they were claiming that the 21 batches, batches because there were multiple sheets shredded at once, of information were the Uokava ballots. Now, another thing that we learned through the election integrity hearings was that the Uokava law requires that all counties and states report the number of users of the UOCAVA system. So our county was required to report how many people use the system. I don't know if it's accurate. I'm going to assume it is, uh, but they reported actually eight military and 17 family members, meaning a total of 25 people voted UOCAVA. So if you're stationed overseas and let's say you're secretary of state or you're, you're a diplomat in a foreign office in, in Taiwan, then your family sometimes comes with you and your family members have to vote through the UOCAVA system as well. So your wife, your adult children, whoever may be going with you. So we had a total of 25 from Carbon County. I don't know if that's, I know that that's what they reported. It's accurately what they reported. I will also let your listeners know that we asked the Secretary of State for this information and the Secretary of State refused to provide it to us. However, since it's reported federally, we were able to get the information from the federal government on Montana. So why would the Secretary of State deny us this information? Why would they not fulfill the request? That's another question, especially when you know that, as I said earlier, the Secretary of State's the one who sent out 
a request to all the county people to not keep the CVRs, not keep the cast vote records, turn that off, do not keep that. So why is the Secretary of State dictating all this? And so there's just a lot of unanswered questions, and we're supposed to be allowed transparency in government. I will tell you that the Secretary of State's office um, is one of the least transparent departments in this state. And there are issues, and it doesn't make sense. Uh, they definitely are gatekeepers, and they're keeping the public from knowing what's going on. We have a um, Montana code or a statute. It's 2-4-1033. And in that code, it basically says that the people of Montana are allowed to know exactly what their government officials are up to. Anytime someone is going to a meeting where they're on the clock, meaning an association meeting where you are paid as a county employee to attend a meeting, the general public has a right to participate and be at that meeting, whether it's in person or via Zoom. We then decided that we wanted to know what kind of training our election administrators were receiving from the Secretary of State. So we asked to be involved in the town halls and, and other meetings that they have, especially since we have a new software system, which we're told um, is causing our election administrators to not be able to pull reports and data that the public have access to. In other words, the history of how someone voted, a lot of counties cannot pull that report from this new system that got implemented in January. They, they, there's either something wrong or they just don't have the sufficient training to figure out how to do it. And... And so this would have been discovered if we were allowed to attend those meetings on their training or at the town halls where they had questions and brought up their problems. I think the public deserves to know if a multi-million dollar software program that we purchased for our voting isn't working right. Instead, the Secretary of State is not allowing us. They're claiming that that statute does not apply to these kind of training classes. But the statute specifically says that if an employee is being paid to attend a meeting that the public has a right to also attend. In other words, if it's an HR private matter where someone's being fired, okay, we can't be there. Or if it has something to do with litigation, that it's strategy for that, okay, we can't be there. But for normal training, normal everything else, and frankly, you know, most members of the public are not going to want to attend, but people like myself that are aware of these issues definitely want to be the fly on the wall to see what's going on so that we are just as aware and we don't want to hurt our government officials. We want to understand it because if we understand what the problems are, then instead of thinking we're being stonewalled, we'll have a better understanding of, yep, we got a problem, but then we have to work towards addressing it instead of sweeping it under the rug. Yeah. So I would encourage people to go to these election meetings, uh, these hearings. And do they stream these for people that can't make it? I assume that they do. Uh, a lot of them they do. Yes, they, they make it available because some of these counties are, are have low budgets. And especially if you're like up in Sydney or the far corner of the state to make it to Helena is really difficult. You know, it could be a 10, 12 hour drive and an overnight. And so they do make a lot of the trainings available via Zoom type situation. Okay. 
Yeah, so get involved. And speaking of get involved, getting involved, I guess this would be a good point to bridge into your daughter's ballot initiative. Now, to get a little history on her daughter, you said she was, what, 12 years old? Yes, but she started this process when she was 10. Wow. I, you know what? I, I want to say something about this. People like my brother say, oh, why should a 10-year-old be interested in politics? Well, I, I have a lot to say about that. Or my brother used to say, you know too much. You know more than a 13, 14-year-old should know, I think. All right. Based on that logic, I'm not here to convert people to my religion, but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as you probably know, Lisa, living in Colorado, is based on the fact that Joseph Smith, at the age of 14, received a revelation to not join any churches. Now, we're not going to debate here whether that happened or not, but let's just take that at fact that he did receive this revelation. Let's just let's just uh, go with it here. All right, my brother and many others would probably have back in 1820 when he received this revelation. Uh okay, what's a 14-year-old doing worrying about a church worrying about what church to go to? What's a 14-year-old doing reading James chapter 1 verse 5? My brother I hate to say it, and many others would have been those people back then who said, what a nerd Joseph Smith was. Now, you can say, oh, well, that's the, that's a different person. No, the same thing applies today. We've got a 10-year-old back then, a 10-year-old, now 12, working on this ballot initiative. I think it's great that young people, children, are getting involved in politics. What do you think? Oh, absolutely, I do. And I want to point out one other thing, too. This is very historical for those that don't know the Joan of Arc story. Joan of Arc started hearing the angels at 13. By the time she was 15, since the war with England was going strong and her village in particular was devastated whenever troops came and went, she decided that I shouldn't say she decided she was told that she needed to lead France against England as as a 15 year old. She dresses up as a male soldier and she's the one that encourages, motivates and leads the troops. And eventually they, they find out that she's a woman. But how does she lead them? She leads them through morality, because just like today, the issues they had with the army back then were drunkenness, prostitution, you name it, all the bad things. And she cleaned up her troops. No more drinking, no more ad adultery, no more, uh, you know, basically, you know, bad morals. So, and, and really, religion and morality are inseparable, if you think about it. Yes. She led them in a victory against England. Joan of Arc won the war against England when all was lost. She got King Charles back on the throne, who at that point was only a few years her elder. I think he was only a couple years older than her. And she got him back on the throne. Now, she didn't have a good history. You know, she was martyred, uh, burned at the stake. But the point is that here is this young woman 
back in the day when women didn't do anything like this. As a matter of fact, it was sacrilege. It was against, it was, it was um, heresy to wear pants as a woman. And biblically, you know, that's going to lead us down another thing with these drag shows and things like that. But the Bible does tell us in Deuteronomy 22, 5, it is an abomination to God for a man to wear women's clothes and women to wear men's clothes. Now, I don't think that means that women are not allowed to wear pants. What I think that means is that if the, the outfit is a man's outfit and it identifies you as a male because of how you wear it, then you shouldn't wear it as a female and vice versa. I don't think that means that pants that are meant for women are, are taboo for women. But the point that I'm making here is that you can't separate religion and morality. As a matter of fact, I think even George Washington stated that at some point. And we need to encourage our youngsters to understand how the world works and especially understand how our constitution works. And if you do have that education, then you can spot a lot of things that are wrong with how our world is set up today. Yes, you can. And just to go down this path a little bit more, and I should have been more articulate, even when I was 14 into politics, I didn't have the knowledge that I have now. And a lot of it's because I was fighting against people like my brother. Oh, 14-year-old shouldn't listen to Rush Limbaugh. 14-year-old shouldn't do this. Well, I did anyway, but because I didn't have the support, I was going off of what I was hearing. So I remember, and you re do you remember, well, I know you weren't into politics, Lisa, but do you remember President Clinton completely demolishing the uh, timber industry back in 93? Uh, so that has been happening for a long time. <laughs> so yes, that happened back then, but it has subsequently been even worse than what Clinton did. I mean, I think what Clinton did is kindergarten compared to what we're dealing with today. Well, for those of you that don't know, Bill Clinton, my understanding is he basically outlawed logging on state and federal property in Oregon and Washington, correct? My recollection. I, I believe that that had something to do with the spotted owl. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had private property, you could still log on it. I think you still can today, but the federal and state property. So I remember when I was 14, asking a person, I was on a, going on a trip from to Yellowstone from uh, Idaho, Boise, Idaho, to Yellowstone National Park, 1994. This would have been June 25th on a Monday. No, July 25th on a Monday, going to National Yellowstone National Park. I was riding in an RV, and I was sitting next to the driver. The driver happened to have worked for a paper company. I asked him specifically, are you worried about your job? And how's your job going? He told me that he was pretty worried about it. I wish I would have been more observant and said, well, yeah, I just know the timber industry got ruined. I, I, that's why I asked, but I didn't think, I didn't think to put the connection together. I just knew something was wrong with the timber industry. But the point is I was able to have an intelligent, somewhat of an intelligent conversation at 14 with this RV driver. And I don't know that he, understood why I was asking it, or I just kind of left it at that. But what do you think, Lisa? Do, do, do you think uh, 
we need to have more youth have these kind of conversations with adults? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes you're amazed at the ability for children to understand concepts that adults even have a hard time with. I'm going to use this funny example because I think your listeners will like it. But my, I've got three children. And my middle daughter was 10 years old and she was learning the map of the United States just as an outline. So no capitals listed, no state names listed. And my husband was asking her to point out different states, like where's Oklahoma, where's Maine, where's Minnesota. And she was pointing to them on the map. And my youngest, who's eight, to ask her sister, where's China? Now, I had taught basic geography to these kids since they were about four or five years old. They know the continents. They know where a lot of countries and bodies of water and things are around the world. I knew that she knew this was not an international map, but I did not grasp what she was trying to put together here with two plus two equals four. And so I said to her, hey, that's a little bit of Mexico and Canada. China's not on this map. And she gives me, my eight-year-old gives me this dirty look like I know. And so then she proceeds to ask her sister again, where's China? And then her sister repeats basically the same thing that I had just said. And finally, my eight-year-old, who clearly understood that we were lost with her question, said, China's in Washington, D.C. Okay. What was that? Uh, you know, the point that she was making is that China has taken over the United States. You know, here's this United States map. Where's China? Ah, so did you know, she, she make that point after she said that? Well, we, we once she said Washington, D.C., then we understood her point. Her point oh, okay. was that China is in the United States. They are in our capital. They, you know, they're, they're, of course, they're in all 50 states. I'm not sure if you saw the article that just came out a couple days ago, uh, but there was an abandoned building in California and someone noticed a garden hose going up into the second floor and probably assuming that some homeless people had taken over the building. They, they called the law enforcement authorities and it turns out that it was an illegal Chinese lab and they were using a lot of electricity and they were basically producing bioweapons in wow. An abandoned building in California. This just made the news today. So the, the point that I'm trying to, to to make here is that China's all over. Like we think yep. this is the United States of America, but we have been infiltrated in lots of different ways. And my eight-year-old daughter's point of China's in Washington, D.C. was her point to make that China has infiltrated us. That's where China is. They're with the lawmakers. Our lawmakers are compromised. And it clearly can be seen by what China's been able to get away with or allowed to be uh, doing, whether it's buying farmland, whether it's buying steaks in our meat processing companies. And by the way, we don't have very many meat processing facilities. Very no, few. We don't. The, fact, the fact that China is the owner of Smithfield Foods, um, the fact that they, they're buying up all this farmland, especially near military bases, how, how do our politicians allow that to happen if they're not compromised? Yeah. So let's get back to your daughter's voting initiative. We're going to talk more about this on another podcast, though, about homeschooling. But yeah, so your daughter's voting initiative, she's 12. She's been working on this at, since age 10. So walk me through how this happened. Walk me through what's on the measurement and how we can get the word out there to have this signed and all those things. 
So my kids actually, um, they don't memorize lyrics and nursery rhymes. I make them memorize things like the Bill of Rights, right? So my kids can recite more than just the preamble. They can recite the actual first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And I, and I have them memorize Bible verses and things as well. And the reason why this is important is I tell them there will come a time when you won't have access to the Constitution. You won't have access to a Bible. But if you memorize what's important out of each, you will have that with you forever, whether you have the paper document with you or not. And these are things that you need to know so that your rights aren't violated. Now, mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time on the U.S. Constitution and history and things like that. We moved to Montana. We don't know anything about Montana. So the first thing we have to do is look at the Montana Constitution. And in the process of my daughter having a strong background in the U.S. Constitution, in the process of her looking at the Montana Constitution, she points out to me, she goes, Mom, um, and, and, and you'll have to forgive me because I don't have it as memorized as she does. But in Article 7 of the Montana Constitution, it talks about the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court's responsibilities are. And one of their responsibilities in Section 2 is they have jurisdiction over the process of becoming an attorney. And Oh, wow. Oh, and, so that, okay. That yep, answers and, a question. Okay, go ahead. Yep. And, and so this is the Montana constitution. This was done in 1972 when there was a constitutional convention and our constitution was dramatically revamped. Um, the progressives call our state constitution, the best constitution in the United States. Like it's, it's the most progressive and it does some really good things. I'm, I'm not opposed to our constitution, but I do believe that our founding fathers of the United States had a lot of knowledge that we don't today. They were very well educated and that they were very smart with how they set up our government with the separation of, of church, uh, uh, the separation of the three branches of government and the checks and balances they, they put in place between those three branches. And my daughter noticed that that power to license attorneys did not belong in the judiciary. Now, most people think, well, that's the perfect place for it because judges should, you know, lawyers become judges and therefore the judges should decide on who becomes a lawyer. But my, my daughter says, well, that's like a closed loop system in science where, you know, you've got the people in charge of who becomes the people in charge deciding who can become one that can become in charge. Like there's no outside influence. And then she learns that you can't lobby judges. So the people, like the power of our country is with the people. Our founding fathers set it up so that the government was controlled by the people, not the government controlling the people. So she's looking at this going, mom, this isn't right. Because this is a self-perpetuating situation where they're completely in control over one branch of government. In other words, in 1972, the state legislature gave away their power over lawyers, which is essentially giving away their power over the judicial branch, by allowing the judges, the fox, to guard the hen house, so to speak. And so she says, this isn't right. And the more she looked into it and the more she read articles, she read a great Wall Street Journal article and a few other things. She started researching it. The more she realized that, you know, and of course, there's all those lawyer jokes too. everyone picks on lawyers and there's good reason for that. But she realized that 
there have been problems in the judicial system for over 70 years. And the judicial system itself has been either unwilling or unable to correct it. And part of that problem is because they're the problem. They're perpetuating a system that makes it nearly impossible for the citizens to have access to one whole branch of government. And how is that possible? If you don't have the right political affiliations or philosophy, then you can be disbarred because one of the things that happened, and I, I should digress here a little bit, in that 1972 Constitutional Convention, there was a representative by the name of Kate. And Representative Kate objected vociferously to making this change and giving the power of lawyers to power to license lawyers to the Supreme Court. And one of the things that Kate said was that the next thing you know, they're going to mandate the Bar Association. And that was not mandated back then. It was you did not. It was a voluntary association to become part of the bar. Sure enough, within 18 months, that's exactly what the Supreme Court did. They mandated the Bar Association. Now, why is that important? Well, the judiciary controls, the Supreme Court controls the courts, right? They make all the rules for the courts, all the procedures, everything. They control the courts. Here and in Montana, should. correct? Here in Montana, yep. Okay, and, you know, this, that, okay that, you're that, answering a bunch of questions. I looked at that proposition. I thought, what? Okay, you're answering a yep. bunch of questions. So, Go ahead. So so that you know that that makes sense that you know they should be able to make the laws and the etiquette of their court and whatever the rules on that but they took the power over lawyers from the legislation legislative branch that's a separate branch of government now they usurped that power now they've got power over two branches the judicial and the legislature when it comes to lawyers by mandating the bar association they created an executive branch agency the Bar Association has become the equivalent of the EPA or whatever IRS or whatever the three-letter acronym you want to you come up with that belongs under an, an, an executive branch body. This is so not now, the American Honky Tonk Bar Association, Dakota Song. Right, right. this Go is ahead. the Montana Bar Association. Yes. So they essentially made the Montana Bar Association an executive branch agency right? The equivalent of the revenue department or whatever department you want to call it. And as such, now when it comes over lawyers, the Supreme Court has all three branches of power over lawyers. And there's nothing that the legislature can do about it. And there's nothing the executive branch can do about it. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They have complete control over lawyers. Now, some people say, well, why is that a bad thing? Like, aren't judges good and whatever else? Well, here's the result. The result is, and for those of your listeners who may not know, I'm going to use the January 6th situation as the example. So President Trump had about 65 lawyers working with him to help overturn the election, like find the fraud, you know, overturn it legally. Like they didn't follow the proper procedure. They cheated at the election, et cetera. Mark Elias, who is Hillary Clinton's attorney, or was Hillary Clinton's attorney, decided to form Project 65. And what that Project 65 is, is to destroy the 65 attorneys that were representing Trump. Now, it's not just to destroy those 65. It's to set an example to any other attorney. If you dare try and defend someone that we don't want you to defend, we are going to take away your license. 
we and, and a good easy way to do that is through the bar association if the bar association kicks you out of the bar association in a state that requires your membership in the bar association to be an attorney you just lost your livelihood because you just lost your license in that state and there is no way another state that requires the bar is going to admit you to their bar when you've just been expelled from another state's bar. And that's happened with a lot of Janu January Sixers. In fact, um, Quentin Rhodes, who's an attorney out of Missoula, uh, was going to represent a Montana January Sixer on, in D.C. And he had an ethics violation filed against him by the Montana Bar Association. They thought it was unethical for him to represent a January Sixer. Like, how dare you? Like, th those, are, those people are criminal. And it's like that goes against the innocent until proven guilty, right? Like that's all in our constitution. Yeah. But these bar associations, these these lawyers are all, a lot of them are progressive, especially in the leadership of, of bar associations. And they think that the constitution is some arcane document that is holding back progress and really should be thrown out the window. Like, why are we trying to conform to it? We should just get rid of it and then we can have good progressive laws. So- they're not looking to uphold the Constitution. They're not looking at innocent until proven guilty. They are looking at if you we don't agree with you, then you shouldn't be doing it. And what does that do? That stifles conservative attorneys. It makes them fearful to take up a case, let alone a client. And if that's the case, then once again, not only is the average Joe denied access to the legal system, especially if it's against the government, but... On top of that, by mandating the Bar Association, by mandating an undergrad degree, three years of law school, if you think about that, the earliest you would be able to graduate law school, assuming normal graduation timeframes with age, you're going to be 25 years old before you graduate law school. And you still have to pass the bar exam, which the bar exam is only given twice a year. It's not like you can go any day of the week. And so you have to study for it. You got to pass it. So that can take another year before you really can practice as an attorney. So now you're 26 years old. Now think about the social and economic consequences of advanced degrees, like becoming a lawyer and having to follow that process. And that process, by the way, is dictated by the state, right? So there are actually four states, California, West Virginia, Virginia, and I believe Vermont, that do not require that you go to law school. And I will also, oh, wow. yep. I will also tell you, know, so it's not like Montana is, is, uh, or, you know, it's, it's not like no state does this. Right. But the other thing that you have to understand as well is that not all States require the bar association, but 28 do. And the district of Columbia also requires that if you're going to practice law in DC, you have to belong to a bar association in some state. You have to be a member of the bar. Now, why is that important? Because if you get disbarred, first of all, if you're from a state that you're not required to be a member, you can't take a case that goes to D.C. unless you join. Right. And then if you're disbarred, then you can't actually practice law in Washington, D.C., which that's where the Supreme Court's located. So in order to practice law in front of the Supreme Court, you have to belong to a bar association somewhere. So you can kind of see where this leverage is heading here oh. right with all yep. this so anyway my daughter notices that this is wrong 
like like this just isn't right and so she actually got jerry schillinger out of circle montana to sponsor a house bill this last session it was house bill 965 the problem and we had 45 excellent representatives that signed off on it and voted yes but of course two things you need 51 for a simple majority, but since this was going to be a constitutional ballot initiative, she actually needed 67, which meant she had to get every single Republican to sign on. And of course, the Democrats wouldn't. And the problem was, is that we had, you know, approximately uh, 22 there that uh, would not sign on. And some of them were lawyers. Some of them were Republican lawyers who absolutely would not sign on for that bill. They were against it. And you, so you have to think about why would a lawyer be against this bill? Well, it's because once you've been brought into the inner circle, you don't want other people competing with you in that inner circle. And then you have to think too, that the average law graduate has $150,000 worth of law school debt. Who knows what they have for undergrad? That's their average for law school debt. And so what does that force you to do? Instead of taking a job you really, really want, you might take a job at that law firm that works you 80, 90 hours a week because it pays better. Or you might not be good enough to get a job at that law firm. And now you're having to charge three, four, five hundred $500 an hour for clients in order to pay off that bill. But what else does that also lead to? Maybe you can't afford that new car. Maybe you can't afford a mortgage because no bank is going to lend to you when you're already that much in debt. Maybe you're not going to get married. Maybe you're going to not have children. Maybe you're going to have an abortion because you can't afford to work 80, 90 hours a week and have a child. Right? So yes. a lot of other social and economic consequences are developed. And it's not just law school. I mean, any PhD degree or anything else where you're going to school for so long, you're deferring not only earning an income during those years that you're going to school, but you're going into debt. You're also deferring having kids. And if you're a woman, you might be beyond child rearing age by the time you're going, because you're not going to want to have a kid after you graduate, because you're not going to want to stay home with a kid. You want to get your career going. So you're going to spend several years getting your career going, whether that's a medical career, um, you know, legal career, whatever it might be. And so by the time you really feel like you're established and you've paid off your debt and you have a house, you're too old to have kids. And so when you look at declining birth rates and that leads to a declining economy, this advanced education and everything is intertwined. And I would say that it is intentionally set up this way. And I haven't even touched on the indoctrination your kids go through when they go through school. And it doesn't matter if they're going through school to be a lawyer, a doctor, or just a liberal arts degree. They are getting indoctrinated that this is how their life should be. And I will tell you as a mother, the greatest blessing in my life has been to become a mother. Uh, there's nothing that I cherish more than my children and likewise the children of others because it is a sacrifice but it is the most beautiful sacrifice ever and it it helps me understand the sacrifice that god made giving his son to us because that sacrifice is like beyond 
you know, imaginable. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was looking at this proposition uh, on the ballot, and it's, it, you've answered some of the a lot of the questions I've had because I was looking at this. I want to talk though about the law school issue. So, in this proposition, if I'm not mistaken, it talks about how you don't have to go to school to be a lawyer. It does not. Correct? It it does not. No, oh, it does not. Okay. So, so step one is that in order to make any laws like that, they have the power to make the law has to go back to the legislature. So all the constitutional amendment is to do is to take that power away from the Supreme Court, put it back in the legislature, which is where it belongs. Okay. Yeah, because it says in the proposition, other states have an alternative to law school. Yeah, that's not the preposition. Uh, that's not the proposition. That is just the argument for why okay. we need to take this first step. Is that if we're to have the flexibility to allow for apprenticeships or some other way to learn the law, the first step we need to do is to give that power to the legislature to make that decision because the Supreme Court won't. They want this to be a closed loop system. They want to be able to pick and choose what you have to do, and they kind of want to indoctrinate you along the way. And we want there to be more freedom, not only, and this is not for like a lot of people think this is just for young kids who want to become lawyers without having to go to law school. That is not it at all. We have a lot of working professionals, whether they're policemen, firemen, social workers. It, it doesn't matter what the profession is, medical doctors that have done work in their field for many, many years. And maybe as a result of that work have also seen themselves in court a lot, like a police officer who goes to testify at court or a social worker in, a, in a, some kind of child custody case, et cetera. And a lot of those people have determined that, gosh, they really wish that they could become a lawyer so that they could advocate for their clients in the court system. But they have families and mortgages and lives, and they can't drop everything and go into debt to go to law school for three years to pursue it. But they're working closely with attorneys on a day-to-day -day basis through their normal course of work. And if they could just apprenticeship under those attorneys, they could earn a law degree. If they can pass the bar and get the practical real-life experience of how to either litigate in court or whatever it is that they might be involved in, we should allow for that. And that's not going to happen with the Supreme Court in charge. That's going to happen with these groups lobbying the legislatures for common sense changes to the rules. Let me play devil's advocate real quick, because somebody's going to ask this question. In law school, I'm sure one of the things that you have to do, if you don't have to, it is strongly encouraged, is to get an internship. When you get an internship, you're working for a law firm or a lawyer or a judge or that person practicing law. Therefore, you're getting an apprenticeship. What would you say to that? So I'd say that a lot of those internships are answering phones and collating papers. You're not, you're the bottom person on the totem pole. You are not learning the craft. You're just a glorified receptionist in a lot of those positions. Now, I'm not saying all, but I'm saying in a lot. And the practicality of running a law firm or a law office 
is not what you're learning. You know, you're basically filling in a void of do this for us, get these binders put together for us. It, it's not necessarily worth you going into court and seeing how things actually work. Okay. So you're saying the majority of interns, and I've never interned for a law office, obviously. I've interned for a broadcast company way back when, but not a law office. And you're right. Uh, even when I was interning for a broadcast company, which will remain lame, nameless, not that I have any hard feelings toward the company, but I don't want to put them in trouble. Yeah, you're right. I would uh, listen to radio stations I, around the country, keeping the program director in Idaho abreast all the programming trends across the country. Not that it was bad. I'm glad I did it. It gave me the experience. Uh, but I did not have any on-air experience at that company other than being interviewed once and being able to stay for the last hour of that particular talk show asking questions i had very most of it was research so yes i i do understand what you're saying from my particular perspective in fact most of the on-air experience i gained was either on the college radio station or quite frankly doing podcasting back then before podcasting was cool so i get what you're saying from my perspective yes so my daughter's ballot initiative is going to require approximately 75,000 signatures across Montana uh -huh. and 10% of the registered voters of 40 house districts have to sign. Realistically, we're choosing 75,000 because we know that certain signatures will get thrown out. And most likely how they get thrown out is someone signs a petition in Yellowstone County for Yellowstone County that gets turned into the Yellowstone County election administrator when they're really from Bighorn or they're really from Carbon. So they signed the wrong petition because you have to sign the petition that goes to the county where you live. And so uh -huh. quite uh, oftentimes people don't notice that, don't pay attention, and they sign the wrong form and it gets rejected. Or maybe the person isn't registered to vote but thought they were, and so it gets rejected or they can't read the person's signature and it gets rejected. So um, we only need to get about 61,500, but we're aiming for 75,000 for about the 20% or so that probably get rejected. And we need volunteers. We are, are hoping to get 750 people across the state to get 100 signatures. And we think that's very feasible because we have basically um, through the beginning of June next year to gather those signatures. And so what we would really hope for is um, people can call me at 970-926-0216 um, that uh, regardless of whether you get 10 signatures or 100 or 1,000, that you would sign up to gather signatures from registered voters in your county, take it to church, take it to the Boy Scouts meetings, you know, take it to your car club, whatever it might be, and ask those folks to sign on the petitions. And we especially need help in Missoula and Bozeman and Kalispell and Yellowstone and, and Billings area, the, the big counties. But we need you in the little counties, too. We need people in Sydney and Circle and Lindsay and, you know, just all across the state. We need you to help us with this. Uh, and we because there's uh, there's two ways to look at it. Getting the signatures is just step one. That just gets us on the ballot. Then in 2024, we need to get the word out to everybody that they need to sign, they need to vote yes and get this passed. Okay, so I got one more question about this uh, proposition. So, 
uh, forgive my ignorance. So you're saying in this proposition, um, you have is it going to be if this passes? Would it be required to get a, an apprenticeship before you practice law here in Montana? No, not no, no. So, so this ballot initiative is just take it away from the Supreme Court and give it to the legislature so that the legislature can pass common sense rules. So then it's completely up to whoever wants to lobby the legislature for what those rules should be. But it essentially allows the legislature to decide, you know what, you don't need to be part of the Bar Association. Or, okay. you, know, you know what, we're going to allow for mentorships as an alternative. So it's not saying you no longer go to law school and it's not saying you have to get an apprenticeship. It doesn't say any of that. All okay. it says is give the power back to the people to be able to lobby the legislatures for common sense rule the legislators for common sense rules on this particular topic okay i uh, yeah i was just looking at uh, what you sent me and i thought what what okay i'm glad for the clarification sorry for my ignorance there no that's okay you know and i had mentioned also that for 70 years there have been issues and the bar associations and the courts just haven't been able to fix a lot of these issues and one of them is what's called the legal desert and the American Bar Association defines that as three or less attorneys um, in a certain geographic area. And so what we did is we went to the American Bar Association site to find out, and the Montana Bar Association site, to find out where the attorneys lived in Montana. And then we went to the U.S. Census site and we looked up how many people live in an area. So the definition of a desert is less than three attorneys per thousand people that live in an area. So I compared the number of counties and the land mass of Montana. And what we came up with was that across the state of Montana, you approximately have 147,000 square miles. Okay. And in, in that 147,000 square miles, we have 23 counties, which is almost 40% of the total land mass of the state of Montana in those 23 counties that have less than three attorneys in that county. And what you have to realize is that every county has a county attorney. So, and, and you can't get a county attorney to represent you. They only work for the county, right? And then you also have corporate and government attorneys in other areas like Helena, Helena has the most attorneys in the state. No, go figure, you know, it's the capital. But you have attorneys that work for a nonprofit or you have an, like maybe the Sierra Club or something like that. They can't represent you. They represent the Sierra Club. That's who they work for. Or you have an attorney that works at the attorney general's office. They represent the state. They don't represent you. So, you know, all these lawyers that work for different nonprofits, corporations, government groups that live in these counties that are getting counted in these numbers but can't represent you. So technically speaking, there's probably a bigger legal desert, but since I can't identify, or I don't have the time to identify what the practice was of every single one of those attorneys in the counties, it could be that more than half the state doesn't have attorneys to represent the local person like you and I, if we could even afford it, because on average, most attorneys charge about $350 an hour for their work. And a regular court case could easily be five hundred to a hundred thousand dollars, if not more. Who can afford to go to court when it's that expensive? So we've got over forty percent of the state's land mass 
that doesn't have attorneys, that they're considered legal deserts. And you've got 22 counties that have less than three attorneys. So 40% have less than three attorneys. But as far as the landmass across the state, just under half of it doesn't is a legal desert. So if you happen to be a rural rancher or farmer and you need someone to help craft a will, or maybe you've got an older relative that you need an elder care lawyer for, good luck finding them. You may have to drive all the way to the big city to be able to sit down and talk with one because that's where they're located. They're located in Missoula and Bozeman and, and, and Billings and Helena. You're just not going to find the attorneys. And then that's another thing too. If maybe you have a patent, maybe you're a farmer that you're, you want to patent something and you know, the patent attorney might be on the other end of the state. I mean, we may only have a small handful in the entire state and the attorney doesn't have to take your case. The attorney could be too busy or uninterested. So there's a lot of reasons why we have legal deserts. And when you have legal deserts, that I mean, people that really need the legal help to navigate the court system are lost. So if you're in a, a child protective services case where your children are going to be taken away and you can't find an attorney to represent you, chances are you're not going to win in court. Yeah. So this, uh, this proposition would help uh, those that live in a legal desert as well. Absolutely. Yep. Because that's another thing too. If and you, how would it help those that live in a legal desert? So if you graduate law school with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, are you going to be able to afford to be a rural attorney in Circle, Montana? You're going Probably to afford to not. Be able to, no, you're not going to have enough clients. You're not going to be able to generate. You need to go to a big city. So, and, and chances are you're even going to move out of the state. You know, Governor Gianforte talks about how he's trying to keep our youth in the state. Well, I, we would love to keep our youth in the rural communities where they grew up, but there isn't the livelihood there when they have so much college debt to pay off. Doesn't matter whether your degree was in agriculture or law or medical school, it doesn't matter. You are graduating with so much debt, you can't afford to go back to the rural community that, that your family's from. And then you lose your family support network when you move away. And chances are you're moving away out of state because you have to go to an even bigger community like Chicago, New York, Miami, Dallas, to be able to actually find a job that financially pays enough for you to pay back that educational debt. Yeah. So how would this, okay, maybe you've already explained this. How would this proposition, though, make it feasible for someone to live in the rural part of Montana or whatever. The $150,000 that you would have had to not only spend on law school, but the income you'd have to forego to be a full-time law student is no longer the case because you could get an apprenticeship or a mentorship, whatever you'd like to call it, through a practicing attorney. And it might take you longer. You know, it might take you five, six, seven years to do but you can continue with your day job and part-time you could be mentoring with this other attorney, learning how to do things without having to pay a dime or forego a okay, dime so of your normal salary. With this, this proposition is not guaranteeing that, but it's putting the power back into the legislature to say, okay, 
you don't have to practice law, or you don't have to go to law school here in the state of Montana if the legislature wants to do so. But you at least can get an apprenticeship. Well, you'd have to have an apprenticeship or something, uh, correct? Uh, right. Whatever the legislature would decide would be the good alternative path so okay. that people who have pursued other careers but want to transition to the legal side can economically and in a time um, without it being time consuming, right, fashion, yeah. be able to allow them to make that shift. Yeah. OK, I get it. So, OK, so I'm just trying to wrap my head around this whole thing. It's such a new concept for me. Uh, I think that this legislation, uh, this proposition, is a good thing. Even if, folks, and I've got to, I got to mention this, Lisa. What if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns this proposition, which we seem to have the court getting into a lot of things? I'm talking about SCOTUS in Washington D.C. Here, what well, then? so that is such an interesting thing that you bring up. So George F. Byrne was a U.S. Supreme Court judge in the early 40s, 1940s. Do you, uh, and most people don't realize this, the U.S. Supreme Court has no requirements for being a Supreme Court judge. There's no age requirement. There's no citizenship requirement. There's no law school requirement. As a matter of fact, there is no education requirement. You don't even have to have a high school diploma because guess what? Byrne didn't even graduate high school. He studied law on his own, passed the bar, and eventually became a Supreme Court justice. So there's this misconception, and it's it and it's perpetrated, I believe, <laughs> by the progressives that you can't do anything unless you have an education. You need to go to college, or you're not capable of understanding how to do X, whether it's legal or some other career. And that is such a wrong misconception. So, but this guy, George Burns, did have a law education, though, correct? Right. I mean, and and he... this is not this is not the actor, by the way. No, um, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he, he self-educated, you know, and um, there were two. And I, pardon me, my daughter knows this inside and out, and I don't know it as well. So James Burns was the one who didn't graduate from high school and he taught law himself and he passed the bar at like 23 years old. But. We also have Justice Robert Jackson, who was also a Supreme Court justice all through the 40s and early 50s, and he did, not, uh, he did not attend undergraduate college. He went straight to law school without doing undergrad. And really? he was only 20 years old when he got his law degree. And here's the funny thing is the college that he went to only gave law degrees to people that were 21 years and older. That was one of the silly requirements at their school. So even though he filled out and passed all the requirements for his law degree, they actually never gave him a diploma because he wasn't 21. He was only 20 when he graduated. It wasn't until 29 years later that the college actually gave him a law degree. And by then he was on the Supreme Court. So let me ask you this, and we're we're going way over time, but I think that this is important. Um, are there people today going to law school that did not get their undergrad? Because I have actually heard of cases like that happening. It's rare, but I've heard it happen. No, so, I the most famous recent grad who became excuse me, I didn't say that right. The most recent famous person who became a lawyer 
without going to law school, was in California. And maybe you heard of her. Her name is Kim Kardashian. Oh, wow. Yes. I mentioned this because there is, there was a college in Cedar City. Cedar City, Utah, where I got my communications degree. It was, uh, uh, I'm going to call it an underground university, even though they hate it when I use that term, but I'll just use that term for the sake of uh, communicating to the masses here. It was a liberal arts college, underground university, George Wythe College. I actually know somebody that went to this and got his degree in statesmanship. Now, this is not an uh, this is not accredited university or was not, but he ended up. Get, my understanding is he went to BYU Law School, Brigham Young University Law School, because he did so well on the, uh, you know, on the LSAT test. They let him in, so that I'm wondering if things like this are still going on today. Even though this guy that I know, I think it he depends got a- on the state law. Every state has different laws. It would not be possible for Montana to admit that person without their undergraduate degree. So basically, Montana- <clears throat> this is saying let's put this in the le- let's put the power. Be- the legislature can decide if somebody has to have an undergrad degree or not to go to law school, in Montana. Exactly. Now here's something that's okay. interesting. So back in 1972, when Montana gave the power over to the Supreme Court, what's interesting is that originally all of the requirements for licensing any professional in every 50 state, all 50 states, was that power was in the legislature. Since then, since 1972, not a single state retains that power any longer. Every state legislature has now given their power away to their Supreme Courts. Now in every 50 states, every, every all 50 of them, the Supreme Court has that authority. And it's completely wrong in all 50 states. We're trying to make Montana the first state to change that and revert it back to the way it was to give the power back to the people. Now, when you say the Supreme Court has that authority... The Montana Mo- Supreme Court, the yeah, state Supreme yeah, the- Court. Yeah, um, you're talking about the authority about law school. You're talking about the authority uh, the authority for... over all rules over who becomes a lawyer. So they really? have the authority to make all the rules. They're the ones that mandate or don't mandate the bar. They're the ones that mandate or don't mandate undergrad. They're the ones that mandate or don't mandate law school. It's the Supreme Courts. Now, it never used to be. In all 50 states, it used to be re- that power resided with the legislature. But that's been something that the progressives have changed over the years. And that and what they essentially did is they took away our power of the people to be able to keep our government responsible and uh, responsive to us. Right. Because we can't lobby the judges. We can't lobby the Supreme Court. We can't say this rule is unfair or wrong. Let's change it. They don't listen to us and we don't have the authority to to lobby them and make that change and in a lot of states um people don't know a damn thing about their judges they don't know whether they're a good judge or not and so some states judges are appointed some states judges are voted in uh, but it's really really hard to affect change in the judiciary Okay, well, Lisa, thanks for clarifying this. I did not mean to sound ignorant. It's just so new to me. Um, 
thanks for clarifying this. And I'm sure it's new to everyone else listening too. I, I did not know any of this. And I was, yeah. like and, I said, and, and I was I looking made... at the arguments. And I thought, what? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Now, okay, now I'm getting and, it. And I made an error. It's James Byrne. It's not George Byrne. James it's Burns, James yeah. Byrne. <laughs> yep, James, James Burns. Um, and he's the one who didn't even graduate from high school and taught himself law and became a Supreme Court justice. But let that be a lesson to us that we make a lot of assumptions. We assume you need to go to school in order to accomplish something, and you just don't. Well, gosh, uh, you know, I said in uh, episode number 10 with Julie Bailing, Julie Bailing, you know, as a podcaster, I get tired of people ask, who's going to replace Rush Limbaugh? Nobody. You. Me. Lisa, we're going to replace Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh's not here anymore. Yeah, we have some other good podcasters out there, but they might be on the way out. We don't know. We are going to have to do our own Rush Limbaugh work, aren't we? It takes all of us to get engaged. And if yeah. I can just put the, the APB out there again, uh, please call me at 970-926-0216. And, or you can email me, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, zero seven zero seven at gmail.com. It's also my daughter Nicole's email. And uh, we will definitely be in, you know, in touch to train you and tell you how you can help us out, whether that's gathering signatures or whatever else that we need. Yes. And I'm going to get involved soon. Lisa, if you can, I know we went way over time, but I think that this is needed. Uh, stay with me if you can. I want to talk to you about something off the podcast. Is there anything else you want to talk about, though? No, I think that covers it for today, and we can always have a different podcast and a different topic another day, and I thank you so much oh, yeah. for this time. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll be back next week, folks. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. If you want to follow us on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow us on Twitter, Gitter, and True Social, you can do so at RKY Freedom. That's RKY, then the word freedom. If you have a suggestion, comment, or you know of a guest that you think I should interview, go ahead and email the podcast. That email is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at Proton, P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at ProtonMail.com. Thank you for listening.